Hi, I'm April Lovett. And I'm Daryl Lovett. We've been together for six years, and we have a sweet and sassy little girl, an adorable and talkative little boy, and our fur child, our dog, Lainey. <laughs> oh. That's funny, huh? Hi, I'm April Lovett. And I'm Daryl Lovett. We've been together for six years, and we have a sweet and sassy little girl, an adorable and talkative little boy, and our fur child, our dog, Lainey. That's right. We also work our nine-to-five jobs together, we teach together, and we own the Lovett Company. We do so much together, and we wanted to share some of our tips and tricks for living out our 24-7 relationship. That's right. A relationship that is all day, every day. Plus, we wanted to share with you how we managed to run our business alongside full-time jobs and still find time for kids, chores, and fun. So in this podcast, the Success in Black and White podcast, we will talk about navigating the gray in life. So get ready, get ready, get ready. We're going to be bringing to you Real Talk concepts every week as we share some of our stories, best practices, as well as talk to guests about how they found success by doing extraordinary things in their everyday lives. Hey all, welcome back to part two of our conversation with Dr. Chantel Bugs. She is a leading expert in interracial couples and multiracial families. And today she shares her experience as a multiracial child experiencing racism and also talks a lot more about the dynamic of families that are interracial and multiracial. You know, when when I first got to to North Carolina, right before we're getting ready to move into the dorms, you know, my mom is with me. And uh, we went to a Cracker Barrel for breakfast. And when we are walking into the Cracker Barrel, so mind you, I go from Colorado, zero humidity, to North Carolina in August. So it is humid. It is very hot. I'm like, I can smell the water in the air. Why is it so wet? (laughs) So I was wearing a pair of shorts and a tank top. And, you know, whatever. I was always a curvy girl, which, you know, we can get into the whole racial politics of that as well. And the ways that I feel like I realize now that like my body was policed because it wasn't a thin body. Um, (laughs) And how that's both gendered and racialized. But, you know, so we're walking into the restaurant and there was an older white man sitting outside and he goes, oh, look at this little nigger slut. (laughs) And my mother doesn't say anything to him. She didn't say a word. So we walk in. We're seated. We're sitting. I'm literally, you know, supposed to be buttering my biscuit. And she goes, she goes on like a whole thing about how I need to think about first impressions and basically made me feel like shit and told me I had to go and put on a pair of pants because basically I was like exposing myself. And I think in her mind, she's like, you're about to live in North Carolina. North Carolina has racist people. Uh, the Klan is here. <laughs> you know, uh, she, she, in her mind, I think she saw it as, I'm going to protect you. So you need to, you know, cover yourself up and not make yourself a target, et cetera, et cetera. At no point did she say, I'm sorry that man said that. <laughs> or like, I don't know, like even, it just, it was not a uh, helpful interaction, right? And this is pretty much, you know, like I'm getting ready to move into a dorm. And then, like, you know, my mom's going to be gone in a couple of days and I'm going to be on this side of the country all by myself. You know, so that it's not that I hadn't experienced racism before, but, you know, it's I feel like that was like a really like light bulb moment. Right. Where it's like not only I think is she kind of does she kind of 
dismiss a lot of like kind of things that I've dealt with, right? Which I, that I don't think is ever productive. And I think sometimes like, you know, we dismiss things that even like younger children experience because it's like, oh, we well, are a child. You couldn't possibly experience racism or sexism or any of these other kinds of things, right? You know, but even as I've like gotten older where I'm like, I, I'm like, I literally studied it. So I know that this is discrimination and you're still telling me that I'm overthinking it or I'm overreacting or I'm, I'm being too sociological and I'm just trying to, you know, make everything into a thing, you know, at the same time that she is, you know, well, I don't know what white privilege is because, you know, in her mind, she's, you know, she's a woman, you know, she doesn't have a college education or college degree, right? She doesn't, um, you know, my mom has dealt with, you know, disability for most of my life because of a car accident she had when I was a kid. You know, so yeah, so it's like, well, I can say all these ways that I'm not privileged. And I'm just like, <laughs> you know, so like trying to, you know, it's, it's, there's always those, those, those tensions. And again, I'm not saying, you know, that my dad is perfect, but like, at least like when I go and I tell him about something racist I experience, he's not going to tell me I'm making it up. Mm-hmm. you know his immediate response is to you know kind of like you know how can I support you or like talk about it or to share an experience that he's had that's similar and so I think again this and this this is these things look different I think um when we're not talking when we're not talking about you know multiracials who have a white parent and we're talking about so-called uh, multiple minority multiracials obviously these things can look different but that doesn't mean that anti-blackness especially if the person right whether the person is mixed with black or not, right? Uh, That doesn't mean anti-blackness isn't happening. But I think particularly with white parents, white parents, and, you know, I've had these conversations with others about how, you know, parents have this, quote, natural inclination, you know, to claim ownership of their child, right? And so they want to see that they are being claimed the way that they are claiming, right, their child. But I think we also have to think about kind of the colonial logics of the nuclear family and how that informs even this idea of claiming children like a piece like like property that you that you have ownership of and like because i'm your mother you will respect me you will claim me you will allow me to claim you you will allow me to tell you right about how you identify and how you move through the world even if that isn't what you actually experience right And I think we also have to think about kind of the role of white parents, uh, historically, at least in a lot of like kind of some aspects of the multiracial movement. Um, So, you know, we have evidence that a lot, like not all, I don't want to say all, right? There were a lot of multiracial people who pushed for the mark all that apply change to the census. But there were also a lot of white parents who were like, y'all not going to ignore my my kid's whiteness. I want to check that box too. So... <laughs> you know, they definitely right were signing up right, to to support that movement. So there's it's this interesting thing to me that most people who meet me don't even assume I have a white parent. Even if they assume that I'm multiracial, they never most people don't assume I'm mixed with white. And so so it's funny to me that like that's my lived experience, right? Um, but then my mom, right? And a lot of other white people, right, you know, are very adamant that, like, no, this, like, you need to be claiming me in a particular way. And if you don't do that, then you're rejecting me, right? And, you know, there's, there's, there's a whole genre, you know, like, of books, you know, these memoirs of white mothers, of, you know, non-white children, <laughs> whether they adopted them or they're, you know, they're multiracial children, you know, and them coming to the realization that their kid doesn't move through the world the way that they thought that they did. 
you know, and so I think probably the most famous one is, is Jane Lazar's memoir. I forget the title right now, but like there's this disturbing scene where she talks about her, her son, her multiracial black son going to the hospital and then like strapping him down to the gurney because of the assumption that like, he's going to be, you know, aggressive. Mm. <laughs> and like that, that was the turning point for her realizing like, Oh no, the world sees my son as like this aggressive black man. You know, or even, you know, what happened uh, a couple years ago now with uh, Tony Robinson uh, in, I think it was Milwaukee or somewhere, maybe Minnesota, Wisconsin, one of those young multiracial black man with a white mom who was shot by police. Like, you know, the, the response from the family, you know, was very much like, you know, he's a mixture of everything even at the same time as they talk about him being a black man, <laughs> right? And it's like, okay, you know, like you had the white mom and the white grandma come cry on TV because they've lost their child, their grandchild. And I'm like, yeah, and the police still didn't, you know, indict that officer, but they said the officer was doing his job, right. that he was, you know, within like normal operating procedures, right? You know, and kind of how those kinds of moments, right? You know, and it's always, it, to me, it sucks that it's like these moments of violence mm -hmm. that serve as like these reminders of like, no, like, like this isn't how you thought it was, you know? And I think that that's, you know, very much, especially I think, you know, I think for a lot of reasons, my dad being dark skinned, my dad being a large black man, my dad being from Flint, like he was, I think, never gonna, you know, like kind of fall in line with the idea that like, race didn't have the significance that it did and that we that we were gonna that we were gonna have to down that we were gonna downplay our blackness i guess i should say in any way right he was you know his response was always no they're gonna be treated like black people so we need to prepare them for that right and so you know it, it's i think that there's some some other difficult things to navigate perhaps when uh multiracial people you know phenotypically you know don't show up as people who are read as unambiguously black. And I think that that's part of this, uh, that's been part of this like really interesting conversation that's been going on again in academic Twitter in response to um, this woman, uh, <laughs> Jessica Krug, uh, who, who's, who is, well, she's not teaching her classes and I think they're trying to push her to resign. So she may be a formerly associate professor. Uh, <laughs> of history, I believe, of African history. Um, but, you know, she's been, she's a white woman, white Jewish woman from an affluent neighborhood in Kansas City, I believe. Kansas, Kansas City, Kansas. <laughs> and she has been masquerading as, uh, more recently, as a Afro-Latina, an Afro-Puerto Rican in particular. And so, you know, there's been some responses that are like, oh, well, you know, this is why we need to police blackness. And, you know, some people have like been like automatically in there, like policing blackness. They're like, kick the mixed people out, <laughs> which I'm just like, mm. <laughs> you know, and so but there are right conversations that need to be had about colorism. Mm. Right. And what does it mean to be part of uh, being community and be part of the community right, of black people? So being community with and be part of the community. You know, when we have to think about how some black people, right, because of colorism and, you know, and, and discrimination against hair and all those other kinds of things, right, uh, are so unambiguously black, right, that there, there's no questioning, right, kind of where they fit within our racial logic in the U.S. And then, right, the kinds of treatment that they're going to receive because of that. I, I mean, I would be very interested, you know, at least in like, 
I, at least for me, I guess like academia, because that is the, you know, the field within which I work. But I mean, we probably could look at a lot of other industries as well. Um, you know, how many of the black people that are within positions in academia, you know, how many of them are light skinned? How many of them are multiracial? I, I would be very interested to see that. Um, Cause I definitely, you know, kind of even think about it, you know, here at FSU. Um, so, you know, there've been, you know, like kind of some of these presser things that go out, you know, where they're like, you know, highlighting, talk to these faculty about XYZ because of their expertise. Um, and there've been a couple of times where I was the only black faculty member included. And it is very bizarre um, to look at like a spread of photos and see that I am the darkest skinned person <laughs> that they've included, you know, and I, I mean, you know, I'm a Fenty 340, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm not like I am light skinned. That is not up for debate. Um, but there are definitely people who are significant, you know, lighter than me. And so it's like, but yeah, it's very weird. I'm like, I should not be the darkest skinned person in this array of photos. Like that is disturbing, you know? <laughs> right. But you know, like that's, that's, that's right. You know, kind of some of the reality, uh, you know? And so I'm like, what does it mean? Like not only for me as a light skinned person, right. To be the black person that gets included. Um, but also as me as a multiracial person to be the black person that gets included. And, you know, there's definitely lots, you know, to kind of talk about in terms of how, you know, we should be careful about, you know, multiracial identity and how it, you know, strengthens these kind of eugenicist race science ideas that, you know, you could actually be half anything, right? Because like race is not biological. Physical features that we associate with racial groups, yes, are biological, but that doesn't mean that race is biological. Um, and so this whole idea, you know, when my mom talks about white blood, I act like I don't have white blood. I'm like, there's no such thing as white blood, but okay. Um, you know, or even like that, that essay, you know, earlier this year, earlier in pandemic season, you know, that was talking about having rape colored skin and having, you know, rebel gray blue blood running or coursing her veins. Just because there are people, right, who were Confederates or who, you know, were blatant, you know, unapologetic white supremacists, uh, you know, may have assaulted, you know, your, some of your ancestors way back, you know, like that doesn't, like, they're, you know, like, Confederate blood isn't running your veins, like, you know, and, you know, like, I understand, like, and the one, you know, the, the, that professor is a poet, so, like, I understand that she's, like, you know, taking particular poetic license, right, but I'm, like, this is like you're re like in when in reifying right and strengthening again like this biological idea of race. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that that does a lot to to help us in trying to like kind of have better thinking about this. And so to bring this back, I think about like multiracial people and multiracial families. Again, I think a lot of people subscribe to this idea, right, of race is kind of biological. And so, you know, you tie that up with, you know, family ties as biological. And yeah, people are like, no, no, you have to claim, you know, whiteness and blackness equally because you have one parent who is this and one parent who is this. And if you reject, right, your whiteness, then, right, you're rejecting the white parent, right? And like, it doesn't really even allow room for right, rejecting whiteness perhaps, right, as a, as a political idea or as a social position, right? And that's, I think, the thing that I struggle with a lot with, with my family. Um, but I also, you know, recognize that, like, not every mixed-race person has the racial politics that I have. 
So, you know, I can't like provide blanket advice. I, I mean, you know, I mean, ideally, right. I would like us all to be a lot more radical in how we think about and how we think about race and how we, how we even think about families. Uh, I mean, there's a lot, you know, uh, you know, some interesting, you know, thinking about, you know, you know, about abolishing the family, right. As a, as a structure. So again, not, not saying that we don't need community, that we don't need support, that we don't need people to, to care for us, right, and that who we care for, but more ab- abolishing, right, the idea of compulsory and biological family as a concept. Um, because many of us, whether it's an interracial family or not, right, um, you know, can be born, born into families, right, that harm us. And because of these ideas around, well, they're your biological family, so you have to be family with them, uh, you know, kind of obligates people to maintain relationships with people who do them harm. And so, I mean, I think, you know, we have to, we have to think about those things. And again, not just, you know, when we're talking about interracial couples or, or multiracial people. I mean, you know, this is an issue for queer folks as well, you know, and, and many, any other, right, you know, kind of number of issues. I mean, I just think about, you know, the way that people talk about, you know, these people who are the anti-vaxxers and how, you know, they don't want to, you know, vaccinate because it'll give their kids autism, you know, and like how that would make a child feel if, you know, the child has any kind of uh, learning uh, disadvantage or learning disability or just anybody, right? I think, you know, people who are living with disabilities and, you know, how our culture kind of tends, is, is extremely ableist, right? You know, so I mean, I think these things can be extrapolated to other to other axes of of oppression. But yeah, I mean, I think I think that that's certainly a thing that I I think have struggled with as I've gotten older. Is you know, I <laughs> uh, I I feel a certain way. I think about wanting to maintain relationships with my family because they're my family, right? But you know, also like how the, that, that family relationship can be used to take advantage of people, you know, and it, it doesn't feel great to, right, you know, kind of be told by my family kind of constantly <laughs> that like that there's some kind of like delusion I'm living under or that like I'm some bad person or like the moment when my mom, you know, told me that I was becoming an angry black woman and like her really not thinking about what that meant yeah. and like how that would be harmful you know, and so I think a lot of people, just because you're in an interracial relationship, doesn't actually mean that you're you're thinking thoughtfully about how race and racism work. And I think even if you're not in an interracial relationship, people need to be thinking about those things. But especially if you are, because to me, like it's not a love isn't just going to magically conquer all kind of a thing, right? Like. Uh, and also, you know, kind of, you know, who we love and how we love them, uh, you know, that's shaped by all of these other factors in our society in terms of, you know, who we're told to value and how we are told to value them. You know, so it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things that obviously hits very personally for me as a multiracial person, which is why I was interested in studying multiracial people, because like, you know, that's an experience that I come from. But, you know, it's also like, for me, like I have this kind of, you know, kind of particular politics around race now, you know, that I've developed through doing this work um, and, you know, learning more and reading more and engaging with other people, you know, that certainly informs why I still do this work. 
and yeah, you know, so it's, it's, it's definitely interesting, especially, you know, in kind of trying to not just talk with my family or talk with other people, but, you know, like teaching students, uh, you know, cause we have a lot of students who are, who are multiracial and multi-ethnic, mm-hmm. especially, you know, since we have so many students here at FSU, you know, who come from South Florida. Yep. And we're also, you know, kind of having to navigate additional aspects of, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of different prongs, I think, of Blackness, I think, because, you know, we have so many students who are Caribbean, you know, and kind of how that informs also, right, kind of their, their navigating of Blackness in the U.S. You know, so layers. <laughs> I, gotta, I don't know if any of what I just said, yes. like, no, really came from <laughs> Very, very good. <laughs> Matter of fact, it, <laughs> it sets me up perfectly for this question as we kind of round things off. Um, yeah, I mean, you were you were given so much information mm-hmm. and so much knowledge that I'm completely blind to. So for someone who like is open to this conversation or mm-hmm. someone that wants to learn more, um, like where do they start? Because we do not have all of the knowledge and research. That yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no. Ah, uh, mm, well. Hmm. I guess it depends. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think that if we're talking about interracial couples, um, so one of my favorite books to kind of like engage with, well, I can list a couple, I guess. So, so one that's really great. That's primarily about black, white couples, but they, uh, she talks to the author, Amy Steinbugler talks to, um, heterosexual couples uh, that are black, white partnered, and then also queer couples that are black, white coupled. And, and so, so, so the whole book is about what she calls race work. So basically all of the uh, different kinds of labor, basically, that goes into kind of making these relationships function. Um, and so she kind of talks about things like certain kinds of like fatigue around that, you know, particularly the partners of color feel, um, you know, when, you know, kind of having to go out and be in the world and uh, maybe like having a, a, a greater kind of attuned, like, you know, kind of sense of like, you know, when something might be uh, discriminatory or, or, or what have you. Right. Um, you know, when we talk about white privilege, like part of that privilege right, is, is a certain obliviousness, right. To, to how they are moving, like to how white people are moving through the world as racialized beings as well. Right. When, when a white supremacist structure, right. You know, frames it as white people as the default, right. White people are default humans and everybody else is a, you know, a hyphened human then, right. They, when you talk about race as an issue, right. It almost, it almost is right. Always. Well, those people who are considered having race, are people who aren't white, right? And white people don't have a race. It's like, no, 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 white people have a race. White people are moving through the world in a racialized way. And their race, right, is impacting how people interact with them and how they interact with others. And, you know, like how people are perceiving them as attractive or friendly or, or approachable or any of those other kinds of things, right? And so, <laughs> so, so she talks about kind of this race work that's, that these couples are doing as they like try to figure out places to live, um, how they kind of just manage, like uh, if they do experience, you know, any kind of discrimination, all that kind of stuff. So that's a really great book. The book's called Beyond Loving. Mm-hmm. And I forget like the subtype, but it has like race work or something in the title. And it's uh, Amy Steinbugler. And then there's another great book. Um, it's called a white a white side of Black Britain, and so that's a book by uh, France Windance Twine, and so she went to the UK and she went it uh, she was uh, interviewing and like kind of just 
sitting around in the houses of these interracial families that had white, primarily white mothers um, who were raising you know, multiracial black children. And so the book focuses on a small segment. So she does note in like the intro that like the majority of people that she talked to are not what she calls racially literate. She focused on the like less than 25% of her sample that had racial literacy. And so she does this great like work of like kind of unpacking, like what does it mean to be racially literate? Um, and how does one do that as a parent trying to, you know, kind of raise a child that is uh, going to be perceived as and treated as black. Um, and there's definitely like a gendered component too. So like she has like most of the book is about mothers, but she has like one chapter about like white fathers and like the white fathers are not doing the same kinds of work that the white mothers are doing. <laughs> um, and it was really interesting about how like these white mothers were like really dependent on like black women friends or black women like families in law, you know, to help them learn that racial literacy. And so, I mean, I think there's a couple of different people who kind of try to get into this idea of like, what does it mean to be racially literate? or like even racism literate, you know, and there's, you know, all of those reading, you know, those anti-racist reading lists that are going around, you know, we're like, here, what well-meaning white people learn about racism. <laughs> I, I will not recommend the, the how to be an anti-racist book. There's, there's, I think, been enough public critique about why that book is not good. <laughs> But there are others to choose from. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think part of this, right, is, is it's not just about recognizing that racism, you know, what, like, even understanding what racism is, recognizing that it exists, recognizing that it is going to impact even your precious multiracial children. It, it's also, right, about, um, I think, being thoughtful about the information, you know, the children are exposed to. So, I mean, you know, there's, you know, all of this stuff, you know, that kind of talks about, you know, like, making sure, you know, that kids, you know, have dolls, you know, so like, Meghan Markle talks about, you know, her family putting together different doll sets so that she could have a white dad doll and a black mom doll. And then there was, you know, the little brown baby doll, you know, so like, here's your family represented in your toys, right? This is normal. Um, you know, and I certainly, my family, you know, definitely bought me black dolls when they could, could get them, you know, and I don't, I don't know if like, I don't know how, to what degree perhaps I registered that that was like, you know, important when I was little, but, you know, I mean, I think that these things add up over time. Like, I think there's a reason, you know, I felt the comfort that I did as, you know, a middle schooler and a teenager in participating and being a part of, right, these, you know, black culturally oriented things. And I never felt like I didn't belong in those spaces. And, you know, even when I got to college, I didn't, I never felt that I didn't belong in black spaces. The only ways I didn't feel like I belonged were because I was poorer than everyone else. And I didn't, you know, have like Lacoste shirts mm -hmm. <laughs> or whatever, you know, it is, or, or Longchamp bag. Um, <laughs> You know, so I, I, because of my, I, it wasn't based on blackness that I didn't feel like I didn't belong. It was definitely a classed thing. And I remember I used to joke all the time about how I was glad that I at least had like black culture, black U.S. cultural knowledge, you know, so like my dad taught us all how to play spades and my mom plays spades, and, you know, so like grew up playing spades. Certain, you know, like my dad, big, you know, I mean, obviously being from Flint, you know, so grew up, you know big and like, you know, Motown music, that kind of thing. But like my dad, you know, likes a, a variety of music, but you know, I, I feel like kind of what's considered like very kind of like culturally US black music. Like I definitely grew up with that music, you know? So there, there were ways that I still felt that, you know, I, I, I 
had an understanding of you and U.S. Blackness that I felt like I could be in community with with other Black people, even if they were more affluent than I was. You, you definitely, I think, have to kind of, you know, do that work to make sure mm-hmm. that, you know, children are exposed to those communities um, and to spaces where that identity is affirmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and this is why, like, so Jennifer Bratter is a researcher who does, researcher who does a lot of work on um, kind of mixed race families and where they decide to live, you know, so a lot of multiracial families, right, the ideal neighborhoods for them are racially mixed neighborhoods, but, you know, Mm -hmm. most of our neighborhoods, you know, are extremely segregated, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so you do get a lot, especially I think as people move up, you know, economically, uh, they're going to be more likely to probably live in a segregated neighborhood. Or at least if it's racially integrated, it's probably not going to have a lot of black people because you get there's been also some other research, I forget her name, but, you know, Asian and Latinx folks also don't want black people living in their neighborhoods, right? You know, nobody wants black people there because, you know, the property values will go down. Um, you know, so, you know, if you can't live in a mixed neighborhood, then, like, do you send the kid to a mixed school? What kinds of, you know, after school programming do you do? What kinds of books and toys and other media is in your home? Do you have black friends? <laughs> you know, right? You know, all you know, all of those things. Like there's a lot of ways I think to kind of try to reaffirm identities. And I mean it's one of those things is I don't know if like I really don't know if my mom necessarily had to work very much to like reaffirm my whiteness, right? Like it's just kind of there. Like, you know, this white woman is raising me. We go visit my white grandmother, you know, my white, uh, you know, aunt and uncle sometimes come through with my white cousins, <laughs> you know, like, like, I'm like, you know, eh, like these are white people. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't, whereas I, you know, I remember my mom like learned how to give, um, you know, like learned how to use uh, motions at home. So like we were, you know, giving my, my sisters have a, a, a more textured um, curl pattern than I do. So they, got relaxers when we were younger. You know, my mom learned how to do them at home. You know, my sisters had the crochet braids. Like there's certain kinds of like protective styles that they had that I never did. I mean, I did cornrows and all kinds of braiding and all that kind of stuff. Um, but like my sisters uh, did like crochet braids and had relaxers and, and other kinds of things that like were not part of my hair care practice. But those are things that my mom like had to learn, especially after the divorce, because my dad actually did all of our hair before my parents broke up. And my teachers, like, when I got old, like, when I would get to, like, high school and stuff and I'd, like, go back to visit, like, my elementary school-age teachers, they, like, joked (laughs) about how you could, like, tell when my parents broke up because I went from being, like, this super well-groomed child to, like, hot mess. You know, went from, like, you know, the hair, the curls were pristine, moussed, you know, there were bows in the hair. And then like, you know, fifth grade, I was doing my hair. So it was either frizzy, like triangle of hair or frizzy ponytail. And that was it. (laughs) I'm learning. (laughs) No, you know, and so like, I mean, a lot of people like to make jokes about, you know, like how you can spot mixed race kids with white moms because like their hair looks a mess. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's either that, right, or they, like, you know, have, like, a single dad, right, this idea that, like, you know, the kids look a mess because someone is, you know, but no, my dad was meticulous about our hair, so, like, you know, we were always extremely well coiffed. <laughs> mm. My dad used to, like, chase us around with, like, a squirt bottle or he, um, to, like, keep the curls, like, wet, or um, he literally would put a wet wash rag in a Ziploc bag with some water and would, like, bust that out to, like, 
wet the hair down if it was like getting too physical. Like literally that went like in the bed. <laughs> I love how Daryl's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's just like, um, five sisters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've seen it all. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and so I, I think as I got, you know, especially when I got into like middle school, so one of my, one of my best friends since fourth grade, so she's a cosmetologist now as an adult, but like, you know, when we were growing up, she braided all of our hair, like, you know, she did all of our hair and, you know, so, you know, my, my black girlfriends are where I learned a lot of like my hair practices, you know, not from my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like getting my hair, you know, hot comb straight the first time and all those other kinds of things. Like my friends did those things for me. Uh, anytime I had a weave or whatever, like my friends did those things, <laughs> which it's, it's hilarious to think about like me putting weave in my hair because I have a lot of hair. Um, but you know, I would have these really ridiculous, uh, especially for like, you know, like dances and things like that, you know, so well, good times. <laughs> yes. No, this has been amazing. And just your sharing of so many of your lived experiences on top of the amazing research that you do and that you've shared, I think has been really enlightening. I've learned a lot. Um, I was just from, listening. I, I know. I'm like, I was like, where do I sign up for this in? class? <laughs> yeah. Like, where do I sign up for this class? I actually really, really want to teach like, uh, um, like a multiracial, like America, or like a mixed race studies class. Oh my gosh. Um, but I have been, I've been told I'm not allowed to do any more new classes <laughs> until, until after tenure. Um, okay. because, well, cause no, cause since I've been here, I've taught five different classes. And so that, that is a lot of prep for, for a junior yeah. person. Um, and like, I, I keep coming up with ideas. Like I, what I want to do is come up with a, a women of color feminisms class. Um, and I've been talking about it for like a couple like years now. And like, you know, I really want to make that happen, but you know, I'm supposed to, I'm, you know, I should probably listen to my chair and try to, <laughs> how, you know. far, how far away from tenure are you? Uh, I'm supposed to go. I, so I'm original date of going up is, is fall semester of 2022 so okay. two years basically this so basically yeah two years from now um because i would have to have my dossier submitted by september <laughs> um i i haven't decided if i'm going to so they they have offered tenure track faculty here at fsu uh, an extra year uh for the pandemic um i haven't decided if i'm going to take that yet since i'm on fellowship right now i'm supposed to be you know publishing and sending things out and so i'm um i'm going to basically kind of just try to get stuff done this year and at the end of this year basically kind of evaluate well how many more publications do i think i need um you know and do i think i can feasibly manage in like one more year on the tenure track um or would I need to take that extra year? Um, so I probably need between five and seven more publications. <laughs> uh, or my, my estimate. Um, thankfully, thankfully, I, um, it's really just the publication count is really kind of the only area for concern. I am, um, I am very involved in service <laughs> um, activities, both the university and um, Saba, don't bark <laughs> at the um, 
at the various national levels and you know teaching seems to be going well here um oh my goodness the downstairs barks dogs are also barking so it's just it's a barking party over here Uh, but, you know, I, I've been fortunate to, you know, win some teaching awards and those things. So I don't think teaching is, is a concern. So it's really just, you know, making sure there's the research productivity. The joys of, of tenure track problems. But of, course, I've, of course, I've recently learned um, that uh, Saba. <laughs> Good grief, dog. Um, <laughs> the... Um, the College of Social Sciences and Public Policy uh, has never tenured a junior black faculty member. Like they've never had someone go from assistant professor to, to earning tenure. Oh, wow. Uh, in the entire, in any department in the college. Wow. So I won't be the, I won't, I won't be the first. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some, some couple of colleagues who are going up this year uh, and next year who are going to be the first. And I think that they should be successful. Um, but I go up right after them. So uh, if, if the information I have found, up to this point at least, is correct, I think I'll be the first for my department. Saba! <laughs> Good Lord! I don't know what's going on out there, but they are. Um, Let's do this. Let's do this. Where, where can people find you? <laughs> Where can people find me? Yes, where can they find um, me? Okay, well, so I'm on Twitter a lot. Um, so you can definitely find me on Twitter. I'm, I'm trying to, I, I mean, I, I write occasionally for public outlets, like uh, like Bitch and, and some other places. Um, what was that? Bitch is, so Bitch Magazine has oh. uh, also an online platform. So I've written, so the, the piece about Meghan Markle that you mentioned mm-hmm. was there. Was I wrote a review of the series Mixed-ish. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to like blog now. We're going yeah. to make sure that we drop some of your article links um, that we've talked about into cool. show notes. We also send out an email. So if you are in our audience and you're listening, we do have an email that goes out every week. It's our weekly highlights. I am just loving that you came on and did this interview with us. <laughs> this so good. This is gold. And it's yeah. really relevant right now. Um, it's, it's going to continue to be relevant. It's mm. definitely relevant for us. And yeah. I learned so much i was just like i was just I was like, oh. yes <laughs> oh i was gonna add um i mean so you know if there are people who don't have like institutional access that want to read like mm-hmm. the journal articles you can always email me um and i'm happy to um to send you the pdfs Perfect. Okay. Oh, that's that awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Yes. We will probably, well, we will, we definitely will probably be reaching out for some of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, people but- probably want to read the autobiography. The, the Dayglo White, the Dayglo White Mama article. The Dayglo, I can't wait to read that one. It's about me. <laughs> yeah. Some of my friends assign it in class and the students always have interesting uh, I responses. It. I can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> Um, well, we, we are going to, uh, make sure that all the information is out there and we just want to say a really big thank you from us and from our audience. Um, and I think for now, that's all we've got. That's it. Until the next time. Bye. Peace. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on any podcast platform and make sure that you rate us. 
Also, we do have a YouTube channel if you prefer to watch our antics, and we also provide closed captioning. And if you want to know more about us, go check us out on our website at successinblackandwhite.com, or you can reach out to us directly on social media. My social media handle is I am Daryl Lovett on all platforms. And mine is April Dawn Lovett on all platforms.